Hi, this is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast. Podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're taking a journey back in time to look at the story of the Primitive Methodists. And no better person to talk to about the Primitive Methodists than Dave Price, a researcher and author on the impact of this amazing movement. I began by asking Dave how he got interested in this long-forgotten group. I went to visit the memorial stone of Hewborn, the founder of Primitive Methodism. And whilst I was standing there, I had an encounter with God. God said, retell this story. And it's the story of an amazing movement whom God used through Hewborn, a man who taught himself uh, Greek and Hebrew and Latin. The only way he travelled in the early days was on foot. They couldn't afford to travel on a horseback, unlike John Wesley. So that he would walk as many as 40 miles in a day. So he, he would travel maybe eight hours to get to a particular place in one day. So he, he, was, he got up early every morning at four o'clock to write, to study, to read God's word, and then he would go out for the day. And he, he, was, a, he was a powerful pioneer. So how did this group begin? They began in a small place called Mau Cop. I'll spell that, M-O-W-C-O-P. It's a little rocky outcrop in Cheshire that can be seen across the Cheshire Plain. You see, it's got a mock castle, and that's where they begin. A no-name place, it's very poor and nothing going for it, and they rapidly spread from there to the surrounding villages in places like Kidsgrove and Congleton in Cheshire. And, and what happened at that location? Well, I guess what happened was they first of all had a, a move of the Holy Spirit came upon this small group of Methodists. And then in 1807, a, an evangelist came from the US by the name of Lorenzo Dow. He started a preaching tour. He started talking about what was happening in, in the western frontiers of America and their camp meetings or tent meetings they had. And so this group of Methodists decided, Wesley Methodists decided, we want to have camp meetings just like they have in America. So they had one camp meeting, and the Wesleyan authorities in England thought, this is a bad idea, we're going to expel anybody who goes to a camp meeting. So in spite of that, they continued with their camp meetings, probably got thrown out of the Wesleyan Methodists. These camp meetings may would have upwards of 5,000 people at them, have preaching, praying, um, all sorts of things, worship going on day and night, and they would even have phenomenon like falling, where somebody would fall to the floor, crying out to God for mercy, and then people, others would come along and say, would mock these people, saying, you're not getting me doing that. In a few minutes, they also would be on the floor crying out to God for mercy. So there were very powerful meetings. The Spirit of God was evident, self-evidently present. Mm, okay, and these 
these folk are coming out of the or forced out of the Wesleyan Methodists, and the Wesleyan <laughs> Methodists were sort of like a renewal movement that was pushed out or left Methodism when it had sort of settled down. And so these are sort of grandchildren of John Wesley. Yes, yes. I mean, they thought themselves, the name primitive actually goes back to they meant early Methodism. In their minds, they were going back to the roots of Methodism itself. Primitive doesn't mean basic or immature. Mm. It means going back to the core beliefs and core practices of true Methodism. But it's also going out. It's not just drawing people in. You're saying it's 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 immediately it's beginning to spread to other places. And yes, what did that look like? That typically would a Methodist evangelist would go into a town or or a, or a village, and he would go singing a, one of the Methodist hymns, and he would sit up at maybe the marketplace and stand and start preaching and draw a crowd around him. Typically, the crowd would, would consist of people who supported him, people who hated him, and people in the middle. And they actually got a nickname known as the Ranters, which they didn't like. They hated this nickname. Okay. But it had the particular value that whenever it was announced that Ranter preacher was coming to town, the great crowd would very quickly gather. So they had a ready-made audience when they had Ranters coming to town. And then the, the local Anglican minister would organise the bells, the church to ring to try and drown them out, or they would set a bull or, or horses into the congregation to try and break them up. Okay, I and guess those, those bells ringing actually led to drawing people in. Oh, the ranters are around, there's a show on. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Well, if you wanted some fun, you would go to, to watch the ranter preachers because they had instances of fire engines being turned on them, the hoses being turned on them, uh, the bells balls sitting amongst them and people bringing pots and pans and rotten eggs and muck and filth was thrown at these open air preachers and, they had and all of those pots. things not not fire engines but a lot of those strategies are exactly what happened to wesley and the early methodist preachers i, I suppose a hundred years before that's probably true yes this is about 80 years after Wesley, this is okay. the 1800s. So um, what, are, what are they preaching? They're preaching exactly the same message as Wesley. Okay. Flee from the wrath to come and a free, full and present salvation. Salvation is free, salvation is full, and salvation is now. Right. That's their core message, which is the same as Wesley. Yeah. They're doctrinally identical to the Wesley. Okay. Wesley. And like Wesley, as, as the... The preachers go out, are they also establishing uh, what we call today discipleship groups and churches? Is that happening? Absolutely. In fact, what Wesley did, they continued. They, when, when they preached and raised converts, they placed them in a local society, uh, which was a group of people who met in, in a home, and then they would have local preachers who went from society to society, who would sort of glue the, the different groups together. So they grew in the same way that Wesley intended societies to gather together. And then over time, a society would build a chapel and they would go get a building. But often they would leave 
meeting rented premises, a farmhouse or, or a home. And um, that's how they that's how they, they grew. And how quickly did this spread? They would say, and I, I think I would agree with them, that they grew much faster than early early Methodism. Okay. So they, they grew. They they started with ten members in eighteen eighteen oh seven, sorry eighteen ten, and by January by eighteen nineteen they only had four thousand members. But then in four years they grew exponentially to their numbers, so that by eighteen twenty three they had thirty three thousand members. Okay. And then their growth continued. So that by 40 years later, the census measured half a million people in attendance at their services on a Sunday. My goodness. And that's throughout Britain, is it? Yeah, they're the third largest grouping. The largest grouping was the Anglican Church, the Wesleyan Methodists, and then the Primitives. So how many years till they got to that, uh, was it half a million you talked about? Yeah, 40 years. Yeah, well, that is uh, faster than than the early Methodists under Wesley. Yeah, yeah. Mm. dramatically so. It is. And it is. was this just contained within Britain? Did it go to other places? Well, those numbers apply to Britain only, mm. but it also spread to America. By eighteen thirty, they went to America. By eighteen forty, they came to Australia, New, Ze- New Zealand, and then they also went to Canada. Africa and other places too. Dave, tell us what what characterised the primitive Methodists in their most sort of dynamic phase. How would you have described it? Okay, I think the things that characterised them primarily were, first of all, their attitude to prayer. Their prayer for them was the bread and butter of ministry. So it wasn't, Lord, we've got our busy programme, and now bless our our programs, but we're so busy doing this stuff, we haven't got time to pray. Prayer was the front and central of what they're all about. And their prayer meetings were lively, they were noisy, they were dynamic. They used to have a shout, where they would shout in prayer, as their form of prayer. And we've actually tried that here locally. Okay. With some success. That was one thing they were very good at, and very committed to. And Hugh Bourne, their leader, used to call that the prayers that the pious praying laborers, we call them, PPLs. So every every member of a congregation was expect, expected to be a pious praying laborer. Then they, they were just like the Wesleyans. They had traveling preachers who went around, traveling evangelists. These were paid, mm-hmm. and they went down to town, village to village. And most importantly, they ran camp meetings which was in complete opposition to the Wesleyans, and that was why they were thrown out. So the camp meetings were, were very successful and quite large. I was reading today of some camp meetings that were had ten and 20,000 people at them. They'd have multiple camp meetings over a summer, so they wouldn't just have one or two. In every locality, they'd have camp meeting, and people would hear what was going on, come to see themselves would be drawn in to the movement and then they would go and form join societies in the local villages 
So the camp meetings, um, not only, you know, there's big emphasis on prayer, encounter with God, repentance, faith, but it's also sending people back into their villages and saying, okay, uh, now over the course of this next year, how can we advance the cause? They're not, in other words, it's not just a blessing for the individual, but the camp meetings are fueling a movement. They are very much so. Um, the, the way the movement grew from village to village to village, it flowed, it flowed a river, the River Trent, which goes, starts in now Cochrane, England, where the, the first camp meeting began, and it goes right through to Hull on the East Coast. And this movement grew along that river. And so it went from village to village, mm. each adjacent county sent evangelists to the next one further along, so that within about five or six years, they had got to Hull from Staffordshire, the middle of England. So Staffordshire evangelists went to Derbyshire, to Leicestershire, went to Hull, which is the Humber and so forth. And then they, they sent their itinerant ministry itinerant evangelists to go to London and, and so forth. You've got the dynamic evangelist, apostolic types that are opening up new territory, and then at the yeah. local level you've got chapels, but they're not just settled, they're, they're reaching their town, their region in depth. Absolutely. What else characterised this movement? They suffered a lot of persecution particularly in the early days. So it's quite common for their preachers to go to prison for often on spurious charges. And in fact, the historians say that they got so used to going to prison, they knew the law better than those who were trying to convict them. Mm-hmm. So they would go to prison and they would tell, they would tell the, the magistrate what, what the law said. And they would be in charge, sort of emotionally in charge of the situation. And then they would carry on preaching in prison then they then they then they get bailed out um, and perhaps go to a camp meeting where they'd be hailed as heroes. Mm-hmm. So going to prison just fuel the movement. It just sort of like putting oil onto onto the flames. You know, it just multiplied and gathered a lot of popular support when their preachers went to prison. They were fearless, and their 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 work was amongst the working class people. Um, so poor miners, weavers, um, agricultural labourers, that those sort of people. So, and leadership then, if if they're coming from these backgrounds, uh, what what do they do about uh, you know appointing leaders and developing leaders? The travelling preachers were paid, so the travelling preachers were full time. And were they ordained clergy? No, just just when they had the Methodist system of quarter days and annual conferences. So when the quarter day would appoint travelling preacher, they have a recommendation from the local society. Somebody wanted to go full time, they would be appointed by the quarter day meeting, and then they would go out full time, paid by the subscriptions of the members of the local societies. 
Okay, so they had to learn on the job how to do ministry, how to preach the well, gospel. They learned by watching it being done, basically. Okay, so there was uh, they either formally or informally an apprenticeship system for leaders. Yes, very, very much so. Um, Hugh Bourne, one of the main, the founder of the movement, had a group he called the Lads. He had Hugh Bourne and the Lads, and these were a group of. 15-year-old ploughboys, who everybody said they're ploughboys, they're illiterate, can't do anything, but they were very effective evangelists who went around proclaiming the gospel and uh, improving camp meetings as well. Okay, so they had 15-year-olds in this movement that are providing leadership and sharing the gospel. And they also had female preachers, which is quite a... That was quite a um, innovation at the time. So a female preacher would would draw bigger crowds than a male preacher because no other denomination had female preachers. Anything else, Dave, that characterised them? Yes, they inherited the Wesleyan music or hymns. Not only that, they also wrote their own hymns. They added to Charles Wesley's hymns with their own hymn book they said in 1823 they had their hymn book, which is called the Small Hymn Book, and then the next one was called the Large Hymn Book. But these songs were what they sang at the camp meetings, and the the preachers would go into to a town singing these hymns before they started to preach. So their loud singing was also part of what they did as, as their daily practice. And I imagine that also helped the contagious side of the movement that, that even people who weren't educated could pick up the the message and the teaching of the movement in the songs and then pass it on to their children, their family, their friends. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you've heard of um, the Salvation Army claimed why should the devil have all the best songs? Mm-hmm. Well, they invented this method, 50 years before yeah. Salvation Army, they mm-hmm. took the pop songs and put Christian words to them. So you'd hear these songs being sung at the camp meeting. People would flock to hear the familiar songs and to find out they were singing hymns. Okay. Now, all of this, I, I mean, I love this stuff, Dave, um, but people are going to be listening. Uh, this is wonderful, but... Uh, what what are the principles for today? How 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 do we take what what we, you've learned from the primitive Methodists and and what would it look like today? Okay, that's, that's a very good question, Stephen. I'll do the, my best to answer it if I can. Um, I think first and foremost, it's a story about prayer. It means that for a dynamic movement to occur today, prayer has to be front and central. And the the um, fuel that powers the movement, you know, so much of our ministry today is, Lord, we're busy doing your stuff. Will you please bless us if we've got the time to pray at all? And I think it's uh, passionate prayer is first and foremost the number one for ministry for God, God-given ministry. That's number one. Number two, I think, is they were passionate about what they believed. That passion came out in shouting, in prayer, 
in singing, in worship, in evangelism. And they were fearless, even in spite of persecution. In fact, I would say persecution encouraged the movement rather than hindered it. They, them, their constituency was a poor working class. So let me give you a practical example of what they could do. When they want to send a missionary from England to Australia, which you can imagine in the 1840s would cost an absolute fortune, they, the missionaries' circuits in 1847, we can't afford to do this, and we can't do it. So somebody came up with a bright idea, why don't we get the Sunday school children to have a project to send missionaries to Australia? And they said, we'll try and send one missionary to Australia. But in fact, what they did, they had 70,000 Sunday school children, and each child had to raise one penny per year. So they raised one penny from 70,000 school children. And with that, they didn't send one, one missionary, they sent two to Australia. When you think of this whole experience of um, looking into this uh, this group that I mean the the name's not around today. This little this obscure group that started small became an amazing movement. Uh, how how has it changed you to to uh, look into the primitive Methodists? I think it's maybe a little primitive Methodist. I think inside there's a little little flame that burns inside. That's a primitive Methodist. And they isn't afraid to shout and pray and to be bold in my faith and to want to be part of a movement exhibits the same characteristics. That's what I'm trying to do. If you'd like to learn more about the Primitive Methodists, I recommend Dave Price's book entitled Turning the World Upside Down. Until next time, this has been Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast.